Well, good evening to you all and welcome to another Ralph Miliband lecture. I think this is the third time, Martin, you have been with us. When the global financial crisis uh, started, I, I put on an event with Martin Wolf and Will Hutton that was attended by hundreds and probably we could have fitted in, we've been allowed to, you know, over a thousand people. Then a few, uh, two, three months later, there was another one. And these were really important uh, early reflections on the global financial crisis and its trajectory. And Martin played a hugely significant role in the LSE's is a discussion about the, uh, about the crisis. It's a particular pleasure for me to introduce Martin Wolf for two reasons. One, I've known him for some time, and secondly, I admire him enormously as an economics journalist and commentator. I think he's one of the very best in the world. Martin Wolf is Associate Editor and Chief uh, Economics Commentator at the Financial Times. He first studied philosophy, politics and economics in Oxford, and then economics at Nuffield College, Oxford, uh, later on. He joined the World Bank's Young Professional Program in 1971, becoming a senior economist in 1974. He then departed from the World Bank in 1981 and became the Director of Studies at the Trade Policy Research Centre here in London, and then joined the Financial Times in 1987, becoming Associate Editor in 1990 and Chief Economics Commentator in 1996. He has received many awards and uh, much recognition for his writing and journalism, including jointly the Wincott Foundation Senior Prize for Excellence in Financial Journalism in 1989 and 1997, the RTZ David Watt Memorial Prize in the 90s, honorary doctorates from the University of Nottingham and here at the London School of Economics. In 2006, he was made, slightly odd title, of course, the commander of the British Empire, not much left of the empire, but due recognition, the CBE, for his achievements. He is a visiting fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford, a special professor at the University of Nottingham, an honorary fellow of Oxford Institute of Economic Policy, and a forum fellow of the World Economic Forum in Davos. His many uh, publications include, and I'll just give you three, The Resistible Appeal of Fortress Europe, 1994, the much um, uh, 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 debated and read Why Globalization Works in 2004, in fact, Martin and I had a debate about this around 2005-06 here at the LSE, and his last book, 2008, Fixing Global Finance. Uh, please join with me in giving him a very, very warm welcome. Um, right. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here again. I seem to spend much of my life at the London School of Economics. In fact, this is the second time I've been here today, which I think is overdoing it. Uh, I was uh, moderating a session um, uh, on the future of uh, the developed countries' economies with uh, four very distinguished panelists at a session organized in association with the OECD uh, before lunch. So I really feel that I'm working for the, o for the London School of Economics with a small sideline in writing for the Financial Times. Uh, uh, the audience isn't quite as large as in the middle of the financial crisis. No doubt that uh, reflects the fact that, one, I don't have Will Hutton alongside me, and uh, two, uh, that things aren't quite as exciting as then. Um, but uh, it also gives one the opportunity for reflection, and uh, that is what this lecture is going to be about. I'm very pleased also uh, to do this uh, um, 
uh, with David, whom I much admire and respect, uh, one of those people with whom one can disagree with pleasure. There are a small number of people in the world you will find, or I have found, with whom one can disagree with pleasure, and they're very treasured people, and David is very much in this category. I should also say that I actually did meet Ralph Miliband uh, at Oxford. Uh, he was rather a famous figure as a sort of Trotskyite historian. Um, I disagreed, I think, with almost everything he thought, uh, uh, even then, uh, but I found him fascinating, and of course everybody knows that his sons have gone on to a rather significant role in uh, the parliamentary politics that he particularly despised. And <laughs> I've, I've always found that one of the most fascinating examples of filial rebellion in my personal experience. Uh, I'm also rather fond of both of them, probably fonder than they are of each other right now. Now, uh, enough of these frivolous introductions. What I want to do is to lay out one aspect of what I think has been going on in the world economy over the last 10, uh, 15 years or so, and some of the implications of that for our future. And it's related very much to the transformation in the relative position in the world of the advanced countries, the, the old advanced countries, the old high-income countries of Europe and North America, Japan to some degree, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, emerging countries of which, of course, China is self-evidently far and away the most important. I think this is an important part of the background story, by no means all the story. Uh, I've stressed this, I've written about uh, uh, of the crisis and where we are now. In addition to that, I'm going to talk a bit about the Eurozone crisis because I'm going to advance the thesis uh, that, it's, which appeared in my most recent book, Fixing Global Finance, that the Eurozone crisis is a sort of a world in miniature. It has many of the features of the world crisis, uh, with the exception that there is, in addition, of course, by definition, an irre irrevocably fixed exchange rate, which changes the way the adjustment process may occur. I think the story that I'm going to tell has quite strong implications for discussion of questions relating to the reform of the international monetary system and uh, the power structure of the world. What I'm going to do is leave those questions open, um, largely because I don't want to talk forever, and uh, hope that uh, we can take those questions up in what I hope will be at least 40 minutes of discussion with you if I do well. I'm often a bit over-optimistic, so maybe, but it will be at least half an hour. Now, I'm going to explain this strange title, which I hope attracted some of you, um, and, and, and why I use this particular image for discussing some of uh, where we are. Now, so, okay. Um, I'd start with this nice drawing. Um, the title, Ants and Grasshoppers, uh, uh, appeared in a, uh, um, a column I wrote about a year ago. It was actually prompted more by what was going on in the Eurozone at the global level, but it appeared to me pretty obvious that the, um, the story could apply at a global level as well. And what I was basically uh, saying is that Many of us will know the 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 uh, Aesop fable um, uh, of uh, the grasshopper and the ant. Uh, in the Aesop fable, the 
French th think that actually it was a fable uh, invented by a French author, but so often on these things the French are wrong. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was originally a Greek fable, of course, attributed to um, somebody called Aesop. Um, anyway, the fable of the, of the ant and the, ant and the great grasshopper is, uh, as you will know, because there's a Disney version, I'll come to that in a second, uh, that uh, the, the ant uh, works hard, uh, laboriously saves and accumulates throughout the summer months while the grasshopper plays and sings. Uh, or plays the fiddle, that depends on how you look at this, and then comes autumn and it's cold and the grasshopper, uh, uh, and the grasshopper is perishing of cold and comes to the ant and asks desperately, uh, would you please give me some food? Uh, 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 and, uh, because otherwise I'm going to die of starvation. And, uh, and the ant in the original, uh, I'd like to say very much a member of the tea party before its time says, uh, well, you are an idle, feckless do-for-nothing, uh, um, uh, and uh, you haven't done uh, what you should have done, so you might as well go and die. And, uh, and the, the grasshopper duly dies. In the um, Disney version, um, you may remember if you've ever seen it, uh, of course there's a trade, and the grasshopper ends up living quite happily in the ant's nest, playing the fiddle in return for his food. That gets a little way towards my notion, because what I've said is that if you look at the world, there have been, uh, as it were, economies with ant-like qualities and ant economies with grasshopper-like qualities. By that I mean economies in which people have saved much more, uh, 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 saved a substantial part of their income, they've accumulated uh, uh, claims, assets, which are claims on others, and the people, of course, on whom they've been accumulating claims are by definition, grasshoppers, namely people who are spending more than their income. So there's a natural match between the people who are spending less than their income, which is actually operated at a global level on a very exceptional scale, and people who have been spending more than their income. And being humans, um, we are mutually uh, dependent on one another. So when the grand grasshoppers go, uh, uh, when the le the lenders stop lending to the grasshoppers, the grasshoppers go into a crisis and stop, uh, stop, stop, uh, um, so fail to service their debt because they can't uh, uh, recycle it. Uh, they they don't get the capital uh, inflows that allow them to service their debt, and they default. And the ants discover that being so virtuous as they thought, all they've done is accumulate not real stores, but claims on grasshoppers, and that doesn't turn out to be a very sensible thing to do. Now, that I think is very roughly the story of what, what happened in the world economy, as I will ex uh, explain, and also in a very powerful way what happened uh, to um, uh, the Eurozone as well. And the ants then realized to their to chagrin and horror that uh, lending to, to grasshoppers is just another way of losing all their money. And that, so my recommendation is they should stop doing this. So that's the broad story that I'm going to tell and with some details. I'm going to tell a little bit more about the dramatis personae, the, the characters in this drama. And with that, I'm then going to turn to uh, my view of how, how this big macro story I've just been telling you fitted in behind the financial crisis. I'm then going to turn to 
to a little discussion of how we've got out, how far we've got out of it, uh, and I'm going to argue in particular that the enormous fiscal deficits we now see in many developed countries are an inevitable consequence of the adjustment after the crisis. Uh, um, then I'm going to turn to the role of emerging economies, particularly today, and how they fit into this picture. Um, and that will then lead me to the to the big question of which is the end story of a process of lending and borrowing of this scale of capital flows of this scale to the rebalancing story and i'll try and indicate why i think that's a central element in the the way out of the crisis then i'm going to touch on why i think the eurozone is the world in miniature so everything before that is sort of the global picture and then i'm going to discuss the eurozone and finally i'll have a very brief bit of conclusion so as I've said, just to, just to uh, cement in your minds the, the points I've just made, uh, I've seen the world as having two players, and I've introduced in this one a third player. I like lots of insects, as you can see. Uh, so we have the ants in our world, and for, for this purpose, as you will see, there are two classes of ants which are cross-cutting. They, they're not exclusive, but inclusive. There are a group of surplus countries, some developed, some developing, uh, and uh, there is also another class, a very important class of ants who are really, really surprising ants in the sense that you never would have expected that, and that is the non-financial companies of most of the, of the world's biggest developed countries. Um, and I'll come to that in a moment. And then on the other hand, there are the grasshoppers, the people who, who spend uh, in offsetting the, um, the, um, the, the, the accumulation of the ants, uh, the deficit countries of which by far and away the most important in the global context is the US, so I'm going to focus on the US, and the, though the UK has some of those characteristics. Then I'm going to talk about households, uh, it, it, because the household sector, apart from the government, in the, in the lead up to the crisis, the household sector turned out to be extraordinarily important grasshoppers. And again, this is a reverse of what you, we generally thought about how the macroeconomics, how saving and investment works in, in economies. Now, who are these locusts? Well, I'm not going to be able to go much further than to, to point out um, that I've, I, the locusts, in my view, are the, the financial intermediation system. Uh, and uh, uh, the people who actually um, gave us the financial crisis immediately. You will remember perhaps some of you that in the German debate on the modern financial sector, uh, one politician referred to the private equity business as locusts, and I thought that was a rather nice image for the way the financial sector seemed to be operating. So, uh, so um, I uh, I think an important part of uh, of this process is that when people uh, save, they, as I said, they they uh, accumulate claims on the people who are spending, and somebody has to perform the intermediate function. And the intermediary function is essentially what the financial service industry does, and I think the, the, the good reason for calling them locusts is such a large part of the flow ends up in their pockets. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to be able to talk much more about that, not least because, um, for better or worse, I've agreed to be a member of the government's independent commission on banking, so I can't say much about banking until we report. But anyway, some indication of my attitudes are contained in these remarks. <laughs> Um, um, 
and so that's basically the story. Now, um, three years ago, um, uh, two and a half years ago, we experienced an absolutely staggering financial crisis in the developed world. Uh, the um, uh, the uh, the crisis was certainly the worst financial crisis since the 30s. In terms of its characteristics in the financial sector, I think you can argue it's the worst ever. Uh, I'm not going to go further into that discussion, but it was an enormous financial crisis. And in my view, we're still living very much in the shadow of that crisis, and will continue to be living in its shadow for a really very, very long time. Now, it's obviously very, very important to understand why this happened, in my view, in thinking about where we might be going. And I think there, I'm going to suggest there are six underlying forces which fitted together to bring out ex quite exceptional circumstances. First, there was a very big intellectual mistake uh, uh, by um, uh, Western policymakers and economists, which was the belief that essentially macroeconomic risk had largely been eliminated, the so-called great moderation, and that led to very large mistakes by both policymakers and pri private actors. Secondly, uh, um, as this is a big, the big theme here, the emergence of some quite extraordinary global quote-unquote imbalances, that is to say net capital flows on a very large scale across the world, sufficient to change behavior in important ways. And that was associated particularly with a quite remarkable change in the global monetary regime towards reserve accumulation by emerging countries on a completely unprecedented scale something that we've simply never seen before. And I think it's important, since this is going on, to understand the scale of this. In this background of the great moderation, low inflation, partly, I think, because of the, uh, the arrival of um, big emerging economies, particularly China, as cheap suppliers of, commodity, of, of manufactured goods, we had a very accommodative monetary policy for most of the last 20 years, and dramatically so in the early 2000s, uh, after the stock market bubble burst in the United States. Um, this combination gave us very low real and nominal interest rates, extraordinarily low real and nominal interest rates, which drove what's called a reach for yield within the financial sector, driven by investors, particularly pension funds, entities like that, which needed a much higher yield than safe assets were giving us. At this stage, we get to what the financial sector did. Essentially, the financial sector fabricated on a literally incredible scale. Um, these safe, higher-yielding assets, quote, unquote, safe, higher-yielding assets. One of my favorite statistics, which actually comes from Lloyd Blackenfine, I've got there, is that they actually have created 64,000 AAA-rated collateralized debt obligations in order to meet the desire of investors for higher-yielding, quote, unquote, safe assets, which, of course, as we all know, turned out to be everything but safe and generated when people realized this, a massive panic that went throughout the entire market. And of course, behind that were massive failures of commission and emission in regulatory structure and supervision. So a combination of huge underlying economic forces with big policy mistakes delivered where we are. 
And now I'm just going to focus on the two aspects which fit best in the ants and grasshopper story, the imbalances and the associated excesses in the household sector and the associated leverage in the household, in the, our economies, which is what we've been left with. As I have indicated, we have seen, and this chart comes from the IMF, uh, a quite extraordinary rise, something that actually has not been seen on, this on anything like this scale since the 19th century, probably the biggest ever, in the, uh, in the flow of capital across the world. But not only an extraordinary rise, but an extraordinary characteristic of this flow. So the, the countries above the line here, the blobs above the line, are capital exporters. The countries below the line are capital importers. And I'll just indicate back in 96, 97, just before the Asian financial crisis, the total scale of these flows were really very small. There is a slight mismatch because not every country is included. But basically we're talking about half a percent of world GDP. Relative to world GDP, these numbers then increased by 2006, 7 to five times. So it's an enormous, absolutely enormous increase. And there were three components of that increase, um, essentially. First, there were the oil exporters. When the oil prices started rising in the mid-2000s, you can see that at the bottom of the surplus group, the, the brown. The second is two very large developed countries, Germany and Japan, which became very big structural export surplus countries in the course of the 2000s. It was their way out of their growth trap. And finally, China and the rest of Asia, that's CHN plus EMA, which uh, exploded upwards also in 2006, 2007, 8. Uh, and at the peak, the surpluses of these regions rose to over 3% of world GDP. And roughly speaking, the US absorbed 70% of it. So at the global level, we had a phenomenon, uh, if you look at the sort of uh, the pattern of net uh, net antishness and grasshopperishness in which these groups of ants that I've described, oil exporters, some old developed countries and some emerging countries grew up to be really ants on a very large scale and the US imported capital on an absolutely gigantic scale. It became, at the world level, overwhelmingly the dominant importer of capital, absorbing about 70% of the surplus. And if you think about this, this is really, really surprising and very, very peculiar. Because if you go back to any sort of basic economic theory about how the, the world economy would operate, you look back at what happened in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, which was the closest to the sort of period we've had, sometimes called the first globalization, the one thing you would say is rich countries tend to save a lot, they have excess capital, and they export this capital to poorer countries. But in fact, what was happening was the exact inverse. Capital was coming from poorer countries, uh, predominantly, the, particularly the oil exporters and the, these emerging country exports, emerging exporters, particularly China, and it was going in the end to the world's richest countries, country, which as I am now about to show you, had no idea what to do with it. Absolutely no idea what to do with it. Um, now, an important component of this, as I said, uh, if you look at the capital flow side, is the acquisition of uh, foreign currency reserves. In other words, a huge global increase in demand for very safe um, AAA-rated types assets by the governments 
of the world and principally overwhelmingly the emerging countries of the world and what I've done here I start with January 1999 which is basically after the Asian financial crisis ended um, to today back in January 1999 most of us who thought a lot about the international monetary system like me thought we'd move to a floating rate world that was the great lesson of the Asian financial crisis when that's the sort of currencies are just going to move up and down one another. Nobody's going to need reserves much in a floating rate world. In fact, in a pure floating, you don't need reserves at all. In fact, most developed countries, except Japan, hardly hold any foreign currency reserve. Well, that hypothesis turned out to be comprehensively and massively wrong. Instead, there was an enormous amount of foreign currency intervention, and the byproduct of the foreign currency intervention was the export of capital uh, in the form of foreign currency reserves, that's what they are, which rose from one and a half trillion to nine trillion dollars. So over the period since January 1999. And you will notice, by the way, if you look at the, the, the top line, it's almost all emerging countries, that though there was a little bit of a decline during the crisis, that's what that little dip down shows, it's actually risen by almost another trillion, two trillion since the end of the crisis. So this pattern of official capital outflows, this is essentially what they are, government organized capital outflows on an enormous scale has continued. Uh, the biggest single component is China, whose reserves have gone from 100 billion to 3 trillion, which is uh, roughly 50% of China's GDP, which is invested in the liabilities of other governments, particularly the US. Japan is quite an important element, but there are also, as you can see, a lot of other developing countries which have played a big role, particularly the, the uh, oil exporters. Nine trillion dollars to manage the exchange rate system and to ensure that capital uh, is, uh, is being recycled abroad. Now, the important, this is how this fits in with my story about the crisis and where we are, um, uh, is to, I tend to think of these things in terms of sectoral flow of funds, the, the, the balance between savings and investment of the different sectors of the economy. And here I'm looking at the US, and I think it tells a really very, very extraordinary and fascinating story. Basically, the US emerged, and that's the blue line at the top, that's net capital imports from the rest of the world into the US. And you will see from 97 onwards, the US basically has become a very large scale and consistent capital importer. Uh, uh, far and away, as I said, in absolute terms, the biggest in the world. And the, uh, and the, as a capital importer, that's just the other side of its current account deficit. It's oscillated between four and six percent of GDP, roughly speaking, uh, over this period. Because of errors and emissions, this doesn't look quite like the current account, but it's very close. So that sort of looks like a structural deficit, uh, I think related to structural overvaluation of the dollar, but we, won't go into that further. Then you have to ask yourself, well, what have been the domestic counterparts? In other words, which sectors have been spending more than their income? If a country is importing capital on this scale, some sectors must be spending more than their income. Normally, in most countries, when you import a lot of capital, you'd expect it's the business sector that is 
investing more than its profits because it's the business sector that has the opportunity to borrow it has good investment opportunities and clearly it's the safest place to put foreign capital and the business sector is shown by the green line and you'll see that has simply not happened the business sector in the US as has been true in most developed countries is actually cash flow neutral to positive in other words it's accumulating claims on the rest of the economy not uh, providing those claims, or to put it another way, it, its profits are greater than its investment. So that leaves other sectors to do this uh, offset of the structural, structural capital inflow. And in the US, that's been the household sector first and the government. And the household sector is the purple line. And you'll see that the household sector's deficit, very, very rare for the household sector to run a huge deficit, peaked in 2005 when it was roughly the same scale as the government deficit. The household sector then went bankrupt, basically comprehensively because of the financial crisis. And you start seeing that come back as house prices fell and it moved to a massive surplus. So you have the business sector running a huge surplus, the household sector running a huge surplus, the foreign sector running a huge surplus, and the fiscal deficit is the whole balancing item running at about 10% of GDP. And in my view, the former changes drove the latter. Uh, and the British picture looks very, very similar. So you can say that the US pretty obviously failed to use the money that was coming in in any useful way. It went into household consumption and then now into government consumption. I've already told you a bit about what's going on in the non-financial corporate sector. Here I've got Germany, Japan, the UK and the USA. And you'll see in most of the 2000s, uh, the the corporate sectors of all these crucial developed countries have been running huge surpluses. They're all very ant-like. They have no use for, for capital from outside the non-financial corporate sector. So uh, that makes it much, much more difficult for these countries to absorb capital inflow from outside. Now, um, if you're going to get, and I think this is the crucial way it fitted in, fits into where we are, if you're going to get a household sector to spend in aggregate much more than its income for a sustained periods, you basically end up by having to get it to leverage itself up. It borrows. People can't buy equity in households. They, they buy debt from households. And in the process, you create opportunities, as we've seen, for an extraordinary rise in the leverage within the financial sector. And that's exactly what happened in the US. In the conditions that I've described, with the monetary policy I've described, the regulatory regime I've described, we've seen a massive explosion in aggregate leverage in the economy, concentrated overwhelmingly in the household sector, which is the blue segment, and the financial sector, basically trading with itself in the yellow segment. And this shows the same picture, but in a more, I think, in a clearer way. You don't see the aggregates anymore. You can see that the household sector's leverage basically doubled relative to GDP during the bubble period, and the financial sector's leverage relative to GDP completely exploded in these in these conditions which um, which w lay behind that extraordinary period of leveraging in the household sector in the US. Now, that I think was broadly speaking the background to the collapse. This financial engine which was making so much money off itself collapsed. 
It led then to a panic, which led to an economic collapse, which was quite huge, and the governments of the Western world responded by nationalizing the entire liabilities of the core financial system, which is where we are today. We've run a completely extraordinary monetary policy, which has not yet changed. I mean, it's amazing that two and a half years after the crisis, the interest rates of the major Western countries are all 1% or less. I mean, just quite extraordinary. It has no historical precedent whatsoever. And the fiscal policy, as I will show you, to, partly because of this absolute collapse in spending in the private sectors, which I've already shown you for the U.S., has been essentially wartime in scale. We've been running deficits in the U.S. and U.K. and to some degree other developed countries, which we previously only run in times of world war. This has basically been how we have stabilized our economies, but we are very, very far from being back to normal. So this, this episode has turned out to be a disaster. I just wanted to discuss uh, how significant this crisis has been and how obvious it is that we've got nowhere near coming out of it. One of the best ways of thinking about that has been put forward in the remarkable work by Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff. They produced an extraordinary work called This Time is Different about the history of financial crisis. And they argue that if you look at previous financial crises in advanced countries, just the advanced country crises, you normally expect in that context very profound declines in output employment and very big increases in public indebtedness and that's exactly what we've seen in fact if anything we've done quite well um, I just thought you it would be quite interesting to look at just how deep the scars of this crisis have been if you look at the high-income countries this shows the GDP of the six largest developed countries uh, starting with Q1 2008 the first quarter of 2008 which was the, the the highest quarter before the crisis and I think it's really very remarkable all of these countries experience very deep declines in GDP Japan interestingly and uh, Germany which were affected through exports, particularly severe declines. Japan's GDP actually fell 10%. Uh, if you look at the last quarter of 2010, so uh, almost three years later, the U.S. is the only one of these countries that is back above the gain line, as it were, that has actually in any real sense recovered. Germany and France are close to that. Uh, UK, Italy and J Japan are still between 4 and 5% below the initial period. As far as I'm concerned, we're all still in recession. That really is still, in my view, a recession condition. So th this is an extraordinarily deep and prolonged crisis with a very weak recovery, which is a point I've often made in analyzing this. We, I expected, because of the deleveraging problem, because of the damage to the financial sector, um, uh, that we would have a very weak recovery. And I think if you look at the lines of growth there, you can see that this has indeed been a very, very weak recovery. And interestingly, if you look at the consensus forecast, which sort of average of forecasts for this year, I'm not saying they're going to be right, you look at the successive consensus census forecasts for 2011, starting with the forecast in, published last at the beginning of January last year through to the most re January of this year, you can see that the, the consensus of forecasts is weak. 
It's not too bad in the US, a little over 3%. There's only one major European country which, about which people are getting consistently more optimistic, and that's Germany. But um, everywhere else, basically, uh, the forecasts are pretty pessimistic and in some cases obviously getting worse, particularly bad in Spain, Italy, and Japan. And I'm sure the UK numbers are going to deteriorate very rapidly. In none of these countries, with the possible exception of Germany, is the forecast growth above, much above most people's expectation of the long run trend. So the underlying slack in these economies will not tighten in this year in any way at all. And meanwhile, just to underline the point, looking at the US story, there's been a total collapse in private sector spending and borrowing, and this continues, and that's why you see this tremendous decline in borrowing by the private sector, the households, non-financial business, the financial sector relative to GDP between 2007 and 2009. And we continue to be in this negative borrowing eyed debt repayment deleveraging cycle, which is the classic symptom of a, uh, of a post-financial crisis, post-leveraging, post-bubble bursting cycle that we are now in in much of the developed world. Now, it follows naturally, as I've said already, I've already showed you this for the US, that when the private sector uh, collapses its spending in this way, if the, unless the government is willing to let the economy implode, the government has to start running an offsetting deficit. It happens automatically. Revenue collapses. Spending starts rising. And you can see here how incredibly dramatic the fiscal deteriorations were, particularly in Japan, the UK, and the US. Something like that in France, Germany less so, um, Italy and Canada less so. The UK hasn't run deficits like this outside wartime, nor has uh, the United States. Um, Japan, of course, went into its recent catastrophe with a uh, very, very large fiscal deficit as well. And of course, associated with that, I think crisis is perhaps exaggerated, we are seeing extremely rapid rises in the indebtedness of the public sectors. In the UK case, for example, the expectation is roughly that net debt relative to GDP will double over about five years. The US is roughly the same. Japan is shooting up towards 160% and uh, so forth. So we have as uh, an enormous damage in our uh, financial sectors. So that's where the developed countries are, basically in a pretty serious mess, and particularly the countries that had the large leveraging. Now, where do emerging economies uh, fit into this? Well, some of that is already in the rebalancing, in the imbalance story I've shown you, but I think it really is a remarkable, and the foreign currency accumulation, the reserve accumulation, but it is a remarkable story. Uh, we have been, um, we are in the midst, I think, of a very profound change in the world economy, and there are, I think, Western economists would argue there are three aspects of this that affected the story I've told in rather profound ways. This is just an analytical 
part of where I think we've been. First, there was a very profound disinflationary shock uh, coming, as I've indicated, from the falling dollar prices of manufacturers that went on really throughout the last 20, 25 years, and that made, and Ken Rogoff has written about this, that made the world seem very disinflationary. It allowed central banks to pursue much more aggressive monetary policy than they might otherwise have done. Second argument, which is basically I owe to Raghuram Rajan, uh, in a very interesting book he's written called Fault Lines. He's argued that in the U.S. in particular, one consequence of the transformation of the economy in the context of globalization was a long period of stagnant real wages. And uh, in that context, financial liberalization played into uh, people's desire to maintain consumption and increase consumption through the uh, expansion of credit, housing boom uh, facilitated that. Something not dissimilar seems to have occurred here. So there's a link between real wages and the credit cycle. And finally, there's the crucial aspect the, the, that I've already mentioned, the global imbalances. It is, I think, a very remarkable fact that we have not thought enough about in terms of its impact on the world economy that the emergence of China as far and away the fastest growing country in the world has been combined very astonishingly with its emergence as far and away the world's largest capital exporter. In some strange and unique way or fascinating way, China combines the twin roles of the UK and US in the late 19th century as both the fastest growing emerging country and the, and the biggest uh, capital exporter. Now, one aspect of this is having cushioned themselves deliberately, and I think as it turns out quite intelligently, in, uh, by accumulating these foreign currency reserves, the developing countries essentially went through the crisis as if it made no difference to them. So one of the really extraordinary uh, aspects of this crisis is, I think, caught very, very well in this chart. If the, the purple line shows what's happened to the aggregate GDP of the developed countries over the last five years, and the blue line shows what's happened to the aggregate GDP of the emerging countries over the last five years. You will see that both of them had a dip in the crisis. The crisis was real and powerful, but you can also see that uh, the uh, aggregate effect on emerging country GDP is dominated by Asian emerging countries is next to nothing. And over the period as a whole, the aggregate GDP of the emerging countries has increased by more than 40%, while essentially the advanced countries are stagnant. This change in the relative weight of emerging countries is itself an extraordinary, I think, phenomenon. And again, if I look at the consensus forecast, you can see the consensus forecast completely rock solid for China is about 9%. India is about 8 to 9%. The Asia-Pacific as a whole is over 7%. And in other reg emerging regions, well behind, but in the neighborhood of 4 to 5%. So we are seeing an extraordinary, sustained, very important and powerful divergence in the growth performance of the emerging countries. Um, and as I've already indicated, one of the most fascinating features of this in terms of the supply of funds that had to be used productively and that was failed, we failed utterly to use productively, was the emergence of China as far and away the world's largest surplus country in the middle of the 2000s, uh, when at its peak it was equal to Germany and Japan together. And on the current forecasts, it's basically expected to remain roughly equal to Germany and Japan together. So it's a really remarkable uh, um, performance. 
And what is even more astonishing to me when we look at China's performance more closely is, as I've indicated, that the, the net exports are shown at the bottom. They peaked at 10% of GDP, and they peaked at 10% of GDP when, when investment had reached 40% of GDP. The implication of that, of course, is that national savings in China reached a peak of 50% of GDP, which is, without any doubt, a simply astonishing number. And, of course, the savings that China is exporting has to be used productively by the rest of the world. Now, that obviously, this background leaves a very, very important question, which is how do we, how does the developed world get out of its crisis situation and how does rebalancing fit into that? And uh, uh, that's uh, uh, a central part of the arguments I've been making for several years. Basically, as clear from this argument, the crisis has left very important high-income countries, particularly the U.S., to some degree the U.K., Spain, quite a few other countries, with damaged financial systems, dramatically over-leveraged household sectors, and for the reasons I've indicated, very large fiscal deficits. These advanced countries are really no longer in a position to absorb net exports of capital from emerging economies, and the chronic surplus have gone advanced countries are not going to take up the slack. It seems very unlikely that Japan, at least leaving aside the disaster, or Germany will t take up this, uh, this slack. So we really are in a world where there's more savings than the world knows how to use, and that is why I think we're running these huge fiscal deficits. So if damaged advanced countries are to recover, while they deleverage their private sector, so the private sector runs a financial surplus, and reducing fiscal deficits, they will need either much higher corporate investment or a large shift in net exports, or both. And in essence, if you look at our government's forecasts, for the economy. That's exactly the combination that they hope and expect for, but I suspect they are going to be disappointed. Um, I think it is important to stress, as again, I want to really stress how uh, essentially related the, um, the, uh, what's happened to the private sector and what's happened to the fiscal position is in our economies. And if you look at the UK and US on the right-hand side, these were countries where the private sector used to spend much more than its income. They were really grasshopperish. And now, and you could see between 2006 and 2007, they had these massive shifts of the private sector towards surplus. In the UK, it was nearly 10%. In the US, it was over 10%. And all the counterpart shift was in the fiscal position. And that's what has left us in this very unbalanced situation. In 2010, you can see, and if you look across all the big developed countries, with the exception of Italy, the financial sector, the private sectors are running immense financial surpluses, which are being basically absorbed, except in Germany, where it's being absorbed in capital outflow, it's being absorbed in the fiscal deficits. Now, uh, uh, essentially, this is the global balance of payments in the G20. What we're going to have to see is some sort of adjustment in the global current account picture, which basically means income output has to rise relative to expenditure in the, in the countries with huge deficits, like the US, the UK is one, Italy is one. Um, uh, there are a few developed con developing countries there that can probably continue to absorb high levels of capital, and that means adjustment in some of the big surplus countries, and uh, it's almost inevitable that China is going to play a very 
big uh, part of a very big uh, um, part of the part in this story. So basically, what we've got to now is a point at which the really big global macro question, in my view, is how this macro question is how this rebalancing process works, and an essential part of that is how long and this is how for how long countries are going to continue to resist the pressure of the private sector to generate um, current account deficits in their countries. This is the emerging economies in aggregate uh, by continuing to have these reserve accumulations. If you look at the emerging countries in the world a whole from 2008-2011, they have continued to have a current account surplus. They have huge private inflows because everybody wants to invest in the fastest growing economies and the offset is largely reserve accumulations and that's basically, in my view, what has blocked the adjustment process. And the really interesting and important question is how this is going to end. So that basically seems to me in the global macro picture where we are. Now let me talk about the Eurozone as the world in miniature. And I will do that relatively uh, briefly because it's extraordinarily similar to this global story, uh, but more narrowly focused. Uh, it has a debt restructuring problem because there was far too much bad lending and borrowing within the system and it needs to rebalance and the question is can it do so. This is the exact Eurozone equivalent of my global current account story and if you can see uh, it's exactly equivalent the aggregate Eurozone balance has been close to zero you can see that's the blue line you'll see there have been two countries essentially with enormous surpluses, Germany and the Netherlands. Germany has been overwhelmingly the dominant one and, and the dominant deficit country uh, in scale has been Spain. So there's been a very large uh, transfer of resources within the system into Spain. But there are also actually quite important deficits in Portugal and Greece. Italy and France also, but they are such large economies that they, they are less important relative to their economy. So that's essentially the capital flow story and of course the countries that that like Spain uh, uh, and Greece in a different way ha that have been importing this capital of course have had the bubbles of their uh, of their own again exactly as happened in the world when the the capital stopped flowing from Germany and the Netherlands to these countries because the bubbles burst again there was a collapse in private spending and a massive explosion of fiscal deficits particularly striking in the case of Spain and Ireland which actually ran very strong surpluses before the crisis hit so contrary to the general view that this showed tremendous fiscal irresponsibility on the contrary they were fiscally very proven it was the private sector that had gone crazy in these cases and when the private sector stopped spending because the borrowing stopped the financial systems started getting very weak asset prices fell again you have exactly the same pattern of massive increases in fiscal deficits which reached 10-12% of GDP and that's of course the background to this extraordinary accumulation in debt you can see here um, this is the uh, this is the net public debt to GDP ratio for Greece, Ireland, Portugal and Spain. You can see that Greece had high debt throughout, but actually Ireland's debt was next to zero in 2006-2007. It just essentially didn't have any debt, and even Spain had debt, net debt of below 20%. Then the crisis hit, financial crisis hit, 
fiscal positions collapse and you have this massive explosion in debt. So this is a private sector driven crisis, exactly like the one I've described for the US, but operating within the Eurozone. And just to support my point, it wasn't the fiscal rules that got broken. Uh, uh, really very extraordinarily, if you, if you look at the number of breaches of the so-called 3% deficit rule in the Eurozone, Spain and Ireland did much better than Germany uh, uh, or France in the years up, this is from 1999 up to 2009. Uh, you will see that the that the uh, Greece did ha ran a very large fiscal deficit throughout, but the countries that are now in the biggest fiscal difficulty, uh, uh, Ireland and Spain and even Portugal, didn't have an exceptionally bad um, performance. The idea that this was essentially a fiscal crisis is, I think, seriously wrong. But of course, as soon as people in the markets began to realize that their fiscal positions were going to deteriorate dramatically because of what was happening in the private financial se private sector, we had these massive explosions in debt spreads. And these, this shows the interest rate spreads over German interest rates for Greece, Spain, Ireland, uh, Italy, and Portugal. And you can see Gre Greece running up about 900 basis points. Essentially, in a very, very short period, the, fr the private sector's uh, financing, which had previously operated for 10 years as if all these countries had absolutely equivalent credit risk, shifted into a mode in which it was no longer possible to finance these deficits at all and these countries all became completely well not these countries Italy did not neither uh, neither did Spain but the other countries became completely liquid they became utterly dependent on sovereign bailouts from their partners otherwise they would all have been forced to default uh, it's uh, it's a very dramatic consequence of a fiscal crisis consequent in large part on a private um, uh, sector boom. Unfortunately, there's one additional problem they have. During the boom period, when everything was going so well, in a number of these countries, there were massive increases in unit labor costs relative to Germany. You can see this particularly for Ireland and Spain. Uh, and of course, the competitiveness that has been lost now has to be regained because the only way out, again, is just what I've described, investment and exports, what's true for the world. And to do that, they have to regain competitiveness. So you can see these massive decline in relative unit labor costs in Ireland. And the only way you can do that is have, having falling wages, absolutely falling wages. So we are really back in a deflation story. But of course, if they deflate their price levels in this way, the real level of debt gets higher and higher and higher. So the Eurozone crisis is very much like the world's, but even more difficult because one of the adjustment mechanisms that's central, the exchange rate, which is working to some extent at the world level, is blocked completely. It's become a very serious crisis. So let me just bring this story. I'm trying to tell the story of this extraordinary episode in world economic and financial history. We reached the end of what was, in fact, a 10 to 15 year, possibly even argue, arguably longer, private leverage cycle in, in some very, very important high income countries. Within the world, the most important, of course, was the US. In the Eurozone, uh, uh, Spain has been the most important. These, uh, um, Ireland is, of course, a very small case, but very much in the same pattern. And these are all bust. We're going to have probably a generation of leverage declines, very similar to that in Japan in these countries. 
That has the consequence that the US role as borrower and spender of last resort in the world system is becoming unsustainable. And once the fiscal position in the US becomes obviously unsustainable, I think that will become pretty obvious. <clears throat> we don't know when that will happen, but there will be a point at which that is likely to happen. Now, that also means that we are going to begin to see some really quite difficult to manage sovereign debt positions in at least some developed countries. <coughs> um, at least there is an argument that that could well happen. Um, that makes managing fiscal policy interestingly difficult. I'm not uh, personally in favor of what this government here has done, but I understand why they thought that this was sensible. We have, as I've indicated, for this, reason, this set of reasons in the advanced countries, a very big challenge of global rebalancing in the process of returning to stable global growth, and we are in a very early stage of this. And in summary, to bring it back to the beginning, if we're going to get out of this in a smooth and manageable way, uh, essentially grasshoppers are going to have become ant-like, uh, uh, lower spending relative to income, smaller current account deficits, um, uh, uh, and ants will have to become more grasshopper-like with much more consumption and much more spending. And of course, finally, the locusts have to behave themselves, of which I'm not very optimistic. So this is the big story. Now, this raises, I think, sort of concluded the analysis, which has taken, what, 45, 50 minutes. I think it brings us into, to, uh, to, to a number of really very fundamental questions. First, how are these, how are, is the unwinding of the current position of the world economy going to go? What sort of risks are there in, in, in the next few years of serious subsequent shocks? And I think they're very substantial. The second set of questions is clearly at some level, as my book on global finance, fixing global finance has argued, this has all got to do with a fundamental failure of the global monetary system. The reason emerging countries have accumulated nearly $10 trillion worth foreign currency reserves is they don't trust themselves in a situation in which they might be forced to borrow again from something like the IMF. They don't trust the insurance arrangements. They want to self-insure, and they've self-insured on a massive uh, on a massive scale. They also want to pursue export-led growth. The problem with pursuing export-led growth is so many of their customers are now bust. And pursuing export-led growth, the people you want to sell to are bankrupt, is really quite difficult. So there's a really big adjustment state. The final point I would make is a very big part of what I'm saying is that over an incredibly short period of time, the emerging countries in general, and above all, uh, uh, the, emerge, um, the, the giant of them all, China, has become an absolutely enormous global player. Uh, it is the second largest economy in the world. In my view, it is likely to be the biggest economy in the world within 10 or 12 years. And the, the role it will play in, uh, in shaping the world system is going to be absolutely decisive for the future. Um, I'm off to China actually tomorrow to, to a seminar where I will present similar themes and uh, I'm going to be very interested to see what the response will be. These are very interesting times. I believe that the big theme here is the change in global power. I hope I have conveyed to you that what has gone on in the global macroeconomic and financial systems does reflect and embody an enormous set of shifts in world power whose full consequences we don't know, but it seems to me very much part of the big economic story of our time. Thank you very much.
Well, that was an absolute tour de force. I mean, one of the most brilliant surveys of the world economy I have ever heard, probably the most brilliant survey of the world economy I've ever heard, telling a very, very big story. I would imagine that there are numerous questions. I know some of you have to go. If you're going to go before the end of, at 8 o'clock, now is a good time because it's very difficult when people are leaving during the questions. So I'll just hang on a minute while some people depart. You can reflect on your questions. We'll start with you in just a moment up there. The man with his hand very high. And if it's all right, we'll take questions in clusters of two or three. Okay, let's, let's start. We'll take clusters, a, f a few questions now. Perhaps you could just say who you are and then a brief question. Thank you. Dan Sofa. I, I know there are m many sources of what's been happening in the world over the last couple of years, but I just wanted to uh, ask what your view is on, on possibly what you think the most significant routes are. And I had two possibilities that I wanted to ask you about. You talked about going back uh, 15 or 20 years. I just wondered how significant you thought the failure to adopt Keynes's idea of uh, the global currency, the Bancor, uh, Bretton Woods is in all of this. And secondly, how significant you think uh, was the decision by the Bank of England back in the 1950s to allow certain customers, I think it was of Midland Bank, to uh, allow clients in London to open dollar accounts, effectively uh, beginning the shadow banking system, without which we couldn't have had the growth of debt, I think, we've had in the last, uh, what is it now, about 60 years. I just wanted to get your opinion on, that, on those two events. Great. Thank you. Clear question. Yes, lady there. Hello, yes. Uh, my name is Ria Banerjee. I just wanted to ask um, about Japan, I suppose, how you think it will affect um, the developed economies. Ah, sorry. It's <laughs> so very difficult sometimes to get directions in this okay. hall. Um, just, just wondered your opinion on how you think Japan's uh, this disaster. Do you mean the disaster? Yeah, the okay. disaster, how it will affect the um, That's developed. easy to answer because I've written a column about okay, it this the morning. Okay, developed as well as developing. <laughs> so I can just cite what's in that column. Uh, with some modifications, the day is changing things, okay? Uh, hi, uh, Alok Basu, thanks for a very interesting lecture there. Um, PIMCO very recently quite publicly stated that they were pulling out of US Treasuries mm -hmm. altogether. Um, do you think US bond yields could remain a lot lower uh, or could remain lower for a lot longer than PIMCO can remain solvent? Thank you. Well, just, can you have me take a couple more? Yes. Yeah, yeah we'll, just walk, we'll go along that line and then we'll stop, have some responses and come back. Uh, you are a math master student here. Um, you mentioned that there's been sort of extraordinary monetary policy taking place over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at countries like Poland or Sweden where monetary policy has been even more expansionary, mm -hmm. they've had the best sort of um, recovery. Sweden just saw its best quarter of growth ever. I was just wondering whether you thought um, the ECB and the Fed have, and the Bank of England have sort of dropped the ball a bit and not done even more than they could have done already. Yeah. The guys are very brief. Just pass the mic along since it's a very eager row. Hi, uh, Vasily, uh, master's student as well. Uh, this is kind of two questions wrapped in one. Uh, previously during this period, I guess, and maybe even from the mid-80s, uh, this arrangement has suited all the players more or less, right? So now we're coming to where the interests of two biggest economies are di diverging. Uh, how do you see that playing out either in economic or in military 
terms. And the second bit of it is the only way I can see it, given the propensity for leverage and easy solutions, is for essentially the money that's been plowed into US to be lent out as equity capital. So essentially we'll have the reach for yield at government level as we have everything from transforming from public, private to public. So uh, I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, I'm Ipek um, from Turkey and I'm also a master's student in international development. Uh, my question will be about uh, the emerging economies that are uh, not uh, that are not saving, that are not, <laughs> including China and Asia, uh, how, how would you uh, recommend the path for them? Because other than um, convincing China to invest <laughs> in their economies or like um, uh, put their savings into these economies and co uh, also considering the increasing commodity prices, these economies are also running huge deficits. And how would you, like, would you suggest a contra contract uh, contracting uh, economic policies which would be very hard politically. Excellent, fantastic questions. If we, can give you, questions yes, if we can give you, say, seven minutes and then there'll be a time <laughs> and then there'll be time for another round because okay. I, there, there are more people who are really anxious to, to ask. Okay, one minute a question. Um, I think that Keynes's analysis of the problem of um, uh, adjustment in the global system and in particular his concern that in, in, uh, in all adjustment situations at the global level uh, which he'd experienced so painfully in the, painfully in the 20s uh, so much the history of the post First World War period uh, that there was far greater pressure on the deficit countries to adjust than the surplus countries and therefore uh, a strong deflationary tendency in the system that fundamental analysis was correct and that's what he wanted that was in essence what Bancor was about I mean I don't want to go into the, the detail but that's essentially what that would have been about because it forced settlement um, I think the underlying analysis was correct Interestingly, though, right at the moment, that's not, for mo for, at the core of this system, that's not the problem. Uh, and, uh, and it's not because the world has solved that problem, as I've written in my book, in the most fascinating way, by driving the one country, the, by driving, this is the sort of Robert Triffin view, look up Robert Triffin, I don't have the time to explain what this is about, but he's basically driven the deficits at the global level into the country that issues the reserve currency. So it's the one deficit country that can finance itself. And that means that it's quite stable. And for that reason, I thought when I wrote my global financial thing, the system will be much more stable than it turned out to be. And the, that's because of something Keynes didn't think about, as far as I can see, at least not in addressing the global system, which is that what would break was not the global flows, but the, fin but the domestic financial system which is intermediating them. And that's the most, to me, the most extraordinary and fascinating feature of this crisis. That a country that issued the reserve currency, which everybody wants to hold, had its financial system break under the intermediation process. That's fascinating. I don't think Keynes, I think Keynes would have been surprised by how big a disaster that turned out to be. I can't go much further about it. So in that sense, Banker wouldn't, because it wasn't the Bancor problem. In the Eurozone, it is the Bancor problem. That's exactly what's going on. And Germany is being driven 
painfully to financing the deficit countries because otherwise it has to write off all its assets. And that's a fascinating uh, process. The euro system is struggling towards working the way Keynes it should have worked, thought it should have worked. Whether it will get there, I don't know. That's the core of what I would say. Okay. Clients in dollar accounts. Um, the, the creation of the, I think you're referring to the euro dollar market and all the rest of it, uh, is, was an element in the liberalization of the global financial system, but uh, the core point is that from the 70s onwards, for a whole set of reasons, some good, some bad, we got ourselves committed to liberalizing the domestic financial systems of all the important countries, with the consequences that the offshore system, the domestic systems merged with the consequences we know. And I think the fascinating part of the story, which economists don't fully understand, and I don't expect, I don't myself believe that I fully understand is the interaction between this global liquidity system which I've described and the way the financial system has worked. Japan, um, my view at the moment, uh, for the reasons I've suggested, is that disasters, of, and this is completely consistent with past history, that disasters of this kind are obviously in human terms horrendous, <coughs> uh, absolutely uh, ghastly, but Interestingly, the impact upon Japan's economy of this crisis, which I've shown you, uh, led to a 10% decline in GDP, is almost certainly going to be perhaps an order of magnitude bigger, uh, not much short of an, an order of magnitude bigger than the impact on Japan's economy of this terrible disaster. The only qualification to that, which is self-evident, is nobody knows where the nuclear story is going to end. And if it's bad enough, I don't want to go into the scene, but if it's bad enough, you could imagine things happening which would change that view very, very profoundly. Um, uh, you know, if you have to evacuate um, a major conurbations for long periods. Um, uh, PIMCO has decided to pull out of U.S. Treasuries. Will it go bankrupt before being solvent? Well, PIMCO, as I understand it, is a long-only fund, so it can't go solvent, go bankrupt. Uh, I may be wrong on that. Uh, if so, I, I, I'm not an expert on PIMCO. It can't go bankrupt. It might find that it loses some money. But the thing you have to remember is that at the moment, and this is the stabilizing feature in the system, yields in the U.S. are very low on, long end, on the long end. And the risk of a, of a move in the price against the holder is quite considerable. So this is almost classic. This is a Keynes discussed that sort of situation in the general theory. This is a situation in which... Uh, um, the precaution, the the um, the normal uh, liquidity preference suggests that it's very reasonable to hold cash. The opportunity cost is low, and the risk of holding bonds is very high. You could lose the interest rate differential between bonds and uh, cash in the U.S. or the U.K. in a day, with just a three percent adjustment in the price of the bond. That could happen too. So uh, I suspect Pimco has been quite sensible. It's not losing much. Um, should monetary policy have been even more aggressive? My instinct has been yes. Uh, 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 the most extraordinary thing is that the ECB has not taken this on board. Um, as I pointed out, the ECB is allegedly a monetarist institution. It has a, a reference target for broad money. Broad money growth is essentially zero in the Eurozone and close to zero in the US because there's no credit growth. So there's a very good, it's ve one of those great, wonderful ironies. I wrote one column about this that if Milton Friedman, the, you know, the archetypal right wing monetarist economist, had been 
around. And today, he would without question, and all the monetarists agree with me, have been arguing that the Fed monetary policy and ECB monetary policy is vastly too cautious. There should be much bigger increases in money than there is. My temp feeling is that that wouldn't have made as much difference as we like. It would just pile up even more reserves. I actually think in these situations, and I've written this many times, monetary policy only works well with fiscal policy, and we've not been aggressive enough in combining the two really anywhere. Sixth, um, uh, um, how does this play out? Uh, well, actually, it fits with six and seven. Um, I can bring those two together. I think one very obvious way this will play out is that the big deficits in the developed world will shift into the emerging world. And that's why, uh, if you want to think about when the Brazilian finance minister complains about currency wars, that's what he means. What is the world financial system doing at the moment? It's trying to push up the currencies uh, of those emerging countries that don't intervene on the Chinese scale or can't, don't have the means to sterilize it. So, uh, in other, or another way of putting it, this is that the world's financial system is to drive the external deficits and the commodity prices are reinforcing this in various complex ways, which I can't go into, trying to drive the deficits into countries like Brazil and Turkey. Those are exactly the countries where I would expect uh, deficits to explode now, external deficits. Um, the, the, the world still has way over 1.6, 1.7 trillion dollars a year, 1.6 or 7 trillion dollars a year of aggregate current account surpluses, which have to go somewhere. They can either be absorbed within the surplus countries, that will happen to a small degree, but not much with oil prices where they are now. That's already going to increase it. Um, so they have to go somewhere. If they're not going to go into the developed world, they're going to go out into other emerging countries. My fear is since these are on the whole weaker countries financially with low savings and uh, relatively weak financial systems, that the next round of financial crises will be in those emerging economies. Three or four, five years from now, we'll see crises in Turkey and Brazil and places like this. Indonesia possibly, very scary, I don't want to go there. So I haven't quite made seven minutes, but almost. Um, so, and that's all, uh, 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 the, th those things fit together. Now, finally, the US could recycle some of its borrowing into equity abroad, it's doing that anyway. The US is very, very good uh, at, running the, uh, at running itself as being short in debt and long equity. And the UK, by the way, is the same. That's the one thing both of these countries do rather well. All that in nine minutes, thank you. Um, yes, let's carry on. Thank you. So I've got a two-part question, actually. The first question is, um, do you think China has actually lent too much money to the US, and so its, its options are actually limited if the US does decide to deflate um, the debt? And secondly, um, Moving on from the crisis, um, it seems like the low cost, no one seems to have an answer to how to deal with the low cost, meaning the financial sector. And we seem to have gone back to where we were before. And I just wondered how we can sort of move on from this if lessons aren't being learned and behavior, can't, behavior, um, behavior seems to be entrenched. Great, terrific, thank you. Right. My name's Donald Alexander. Looking at China, how, for, how long can it continue to run a surplus if its growth is so high? And what would be the pressure on it, other than other people wanting to uh, enforce some things? What would be the internal pressure for them to change? So how long can they go on? And yes. What will make the change? Next, over there. Mm -hmm. 
Um, a quick question. Do you expect China to reduce its um, surface dramatically over the next, say, five to ten years, as, you know, we expect it to become the largest economy, you know, sort of Goldman's and PwC say by 2019? And also as part of that, um, how much of a role do you think credit recovery or credit expansion plays in supporting both the UK and global economy? Okay. Mike's just coming down to you. Yeah. You're on. Somebody up at the top? Yes, yeah, someone up at the top. We're just waiting. Is the mic not working? All right. Well, can you shout it out? No. Oh, there's another mic coming. Let's just move another mic in quickly and uh, get on with it. Yeah. This one. Uh, um, you you mentioned that the stagnation of wages was the determinant in the financial crisis. Uh, so I wonder no, how I've reported the, the theory of one economist. I'm not certainly. completely sure, but it's a very interesting theory. Well, then I, I'd be interested to see what your interpretation is on the uh, use of labor protection uh, as another policy to pursue uh, in kind of reformulating financial markets. Labor protection. Yes. You mean protection of? Or, uh, could you be specify what you mean by so the, uh, the protection of, of labor unions, or at least the internalization of labor policy to protect wages okay. uh, for the next financial yeah. crisis? Okay. More up top. Yes. There's someone next to you with his hand finger up there. Just pass it along. Thank you. Um, my name is Peter Sturdy. Um, you've extended your global model to the. Uh, Eurozone. Could you extend that to the United States as well with the, the risk of default with uh, individual US states within a uh, advanced economy? Couple more. God. Uh, you, you, my name is Murray, Murray Hennessy. You, you talked in your uh, speech about uh, the fact that at some point in time confidence in the US uh, economy or in the US as a as banker uh, may may dissipate, and I was wondering what you think will happen then. Okay, this is ex I've never seen so many people eager to ask questions. Uh, it's very difficult, so I'm going to just take two more. Okay, you over there, and then I'll come down to to you. Yeah, just pass them. I'm I'm really sorry those who didn't have a chance. Thank you, um, Jasper Linkson. I'm an alumni. Um, quick question on corporate power. Um, why do you think the corporate sector is running such a large surplus, and why has it developed it, and why is it so unwilling to invest that cash surplus? Okay. Thanks. Thanks. And down here. Um, thank you so much for coming here. A quick question regarding housing policies in the United States. What do you think policymakers uh, should be able to do about incentivizing home ownership in the United States, and do you think that's a business they should actually be in? And kind of consequently, uh, do you think that loose monetary policy is further incentivizing home ownership, and to a degree that's unsustainable? Is there anyone who'd be really, really, really sick if they didn't answer, ask a question? Anyone? How long do you want us to stay with, to answer no, no one, No one has said yes to that. Okay, You're, the last round. Okay. Uh, we should finish uh, by eight. Thank okay. you. So ten minutes. Okay, somebody asked whether uh, China's lent too much to the U.S. I have a very, very strong impression from the speeches that are coming from Chinese, very leading Chinese officials and policymakers, that they are suffering from very severe buyer's remorse. Uh, and uh, because they have realized that they are very exposed to the policies of a country uh, they don't trust anymore. And the financial crisis and subsequent discussions in the U.S. has made 
China, very leading Chinese officials, officials very nervous, which is why they, whenever they meet Chinese offic American officials, they complain about quantitative easing, very famously. They complain about U.S. fiscal policy, and that's their response to complaints from the U.S. about Chinese exchange rate policy. It seems to me that both sides are equally unsuccessful in getting the other side to listen. So this is not a very, um, it's, a, it's, it, it's, a, it's not turning out to be a very fruitful discussion. The problem is that they, the, they have bias remorse, uh, but there's nothing they can do. They've now hold all these assets, and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, the, it's, a, it's a, an example of another famous uh, uh, Keynes story. Uh, example, if you owe your bank 100 pounds, you have a problem. If you owe your bank a million pounds, it has a problem. Well, in this case, um, it's not quite true because we don't know the composition, but China uh, um, is owed by its debtors a total of $3 trillion, which is, as I said, half of GDP. So it's an enormous amount of money. A lot of that must be in dollars, and it has a problem. And it's not much you can do about this, um, given its past policies. It was for this reason, I would say in my defense, that for many years, from 2005 roughly onwards, I tried to persuade the Chinese to stop doing this, but... Uh, I was not successful, let's say. Probably not much attention was paid to this view. And the trouble is, it's, the accumulations are going on. I mean, it just continues. So I think China now has a very large problem. Uh, and it, it seems to me inevitable that a lot of this will be lost. One way or another, a lot of this will be lost. Um, uh, can we do much about the locusts? Um, well, I'm working on this in one context, as I said. I can't say much more. I think there are ways... I think there are ways of reducing the most severe consequence of locust behavior, um, but we have a very big problem. <coughs> There's no question, if you look at the pattern of incentives within the financial sector broadly defined and the pattern of risk and reward, it's very scary. I mean, there's no way around it. Um, so that's just how it is. Um, I think that's obvious. Um, the question was asked here, uh, how long can China run a surplus? Well, I suppose the answer to that is as long as other people are willing to run deficits or able to run deficits. Um, the, the, um, it's very difficult to predict because so some, some much of what's happened with China and its external accounts has been so surprising. Nobody expected its surplus to explode from 2% of GDP to 11% to of GDP in a period of just two or three years. It was a very extraordinary phenomenon. Since then, it has reduced as a share of GDP. Very important point. Roughly half, it's now probably running. We don't know because there's a lot of instability in the short run of the Chinese surplus. Probably running about 4 or 5% of GDP. Now, what might make it change? Um, that's a very deep set of questions because you then have to go to questions of what what is driving it the exchange rate policy the savings behavior uh, the fiscal policy of the private sector the savings behavior it's very complicated and if given the time limits I just don't have the time to go through it all I think the 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 big point is I have uh, I'm persuaded that if you look at the whole picture for China it is very plausible that as a share of GDP we're not going to see it at 11% again it's very, very likely to go down, and perhaps down to sort of Japanese levels, three or four percent or so. That's the good news, as it were, in the globe. The other thing you've got to remember, however, is the, if you like the quote-unquote bad news, is China's GDP is doubling every six years. 
So as a share of GDP, it may be falling, but its total share of the world picture is rising very dramatically. So it's still a very big adjustment problem. Personally, I think it would be wonderful if China, and I think it would be riskless for China, moved into deficit. But uh, it's probably, probably that's um, quite a few deca decades down the road. But we can't be sure. It's a very big question. Uh, because it's such a complicated story. Um, but I, I, I expect that the re big reduction we've seen in, during the crisis and afterwards will lead to a new stability around 3 to 5% of GDP. That's sort of implicitly where they seem to be targeting, uh, targeting and Chinese policymakers have enormous levers in this, and I think they're going to retain the levers. Um, but I can't go further in that. It's just too complicated. How important is credit recovery to growth? That's an incredibly important and difficult question. And um, the view I've tended to take is I don't know the answer to that question, but it's reasonably clear that massive credit contraction is bad for growth. This is an, a big adjustment problem. Uh, it's probably true that it would be desirable if the amount of leverage in our economy and the amount of leverage in the US economy were simply smaller than it is now. We've got too much debt out there and we, because we've, we've, we've subsidized it massively through the tax system and other means. However, it's very difficult to see and experience suggests, strongly supports this, that you can go through a deleveraging process which isn't really rather bad for growth unless you've got some other massive source of demand in the system and it's not obvious what that could be for an economy as big as the US. So um, how much credit expansion we need for growth? I suspect not much, but credit contraction is a big problem. Labor protection. Um, that's a very, very interesting set of questions. Um, one of the things I've changed my view on in the last 10 years is minimum wages. And I suspect that in the US case, at least, having minimum wages close to British levels and maintaining them, they're much below. It's very extraordinary. The US is a much richer country than the US, but the minimum wage is well below. I don't know the exact figures. Probably, probably it's two-thirds of the US UK level at the moment. Maybe I haven't seen the most recent figures, but I, I think it would be well below it. Uh, uh, driving up minimum wages would help. Recreating in the tradable goods and services sector, which is where this is the sort of trades union power that used to exist in developed countries and particularly in the US 20, 30 years ago, I think it's just impossible. I mean, the trades unions in the US now are basically public sector unions. I don't think you can recreate that. I may be wrong. I think the key thing rather is the way minimum wages are used. Um, and I think they, their effects are probably much more positive than I used to think. But that's a very controversial issue. I think the comparison between the US states and the Eurozone is a very nice one. And actually, from a fiscal point of view, it's very similar. The big difference is, and it's a very important difference, as people like Marty Feldstein pointed out, is that the US does have a federal budget. It can run deficits. And though it's very difficult at the moment politically, it can shift money implicitly, therefore, from states in trouble to states that are, from states in good shape to states in trouble. The euro system doesn't have a budget. They've created this European financial stability facility, which is clearly a move in that direction. But I think most people who've looked at the numbers don't think it begins to deal with the liquidity problem, adjustment problems, satisfactorily. And that leaves aside the other big problem, which is compared with the US, that the adjustment mechanisms I talked about, movement of people and wages, are clearly less effective within the Eurozone than within the US. But I think the analogies are not that bad. 
But I suspect, my own view, if the Eurozone is going to succeed, it, it is almost certainly going to end up with a very much bigger, not enormous, uh, fiscal mechanism of some kind. Um, very famous British economist Donald McDougall did a very famous report on this about 20 years ago when she argued that the Eurozone would need, uh, or the EU, if it were a monetary union, would need, a, if I remember correctly, a fiscal regime, a fiscal system of about 7% of aggregate GDP to cushion likely shocks. That doesn't look to me a completely unreasonable number. It's quite small, much smaller, of course, than the US. But, of course, it's seven times bigger than the current budget. So it would be very, very difficult. My own guess is that 20 years from now, the Eurozone will either be something much more like a fiscal union, a, a genuine federal union, or bits of it will have broken off. I suspect that's my, my guess, and it would then end up as a core of countries which are so similar that they don't, there's no problem with it. You don't need a fiscal union between Germany and the Netherlands because they're essentially the same thing. Um, in economic terms, in economic terms. <laughs> The Netherlands, I'm sorry to say, in economic terms, is very, very, very integrated in Germany as is Austria. Um, Belgium, similarly. Um, now, um, so you don't need a fiscal mechanism. Less, less pooling of sovereignty is needed between countries that are very similar. That's very interesting. Um, uh, what could dissipate confidence in the dollar? Um, I don't think the US will be able to get to 200% of GDP debt ratios, which Japan has done, and still be very comfortable. Uh, the, because I don't think the creditors will be comfortable with that situation. But it could just mean a massive weakening of the dollar. You can live with that. Uh, there'll be some inflation. You can probably live with that. Um, I suspect it wouldn't be a sudden break. But uh, the path could be very bumpy. Um, uh, but actually, my view has always been that as long as these huge financial surpluses in the private sector continue, you can run the deficits. Uh, uh, the difficult point starts being when you start having serious recovery. I don't have a... Now, the corporate surplus is absolutely fascinating. I don't have time, but I think there are three things, two things going on here. First, we have a tax system which in most countries strongly encourages corporates to retain earnings. This corporate tax system is completely the wrong way around for mature economies. It's what you would do if what you want to do is get the corporates to invest much more because, uh, which is what we used to think we wanted to do, but the corporates uh, are not going to do this for reasons I'll come to in a moment. And so what you're doing is just piling up cash in the corporates, which ends up indirectly going through the banking system and in financing government. Seems a very, very weird, um, a very weird system everywhere. It, well, my joke is the non-financial corporates are the only really sound banks left in our economy. Now, the, that's a bit of a, a joke. Now, the, the second question, however, side is the, is, the investment, um, is the investment side of it. I think there it's not a real puzzle. Let's suppose you're a major corporate. You're living in an economy with a stagnant or falling population, stagnant or falling labor force, relatively high costs, well, re relatively very high costs, uh, and, uh, and high standards, and you ask yourself, where would I like to place my next big investment? You know, I've got cash, cash, where am I going to put my next big investment? Well, it's not going to be at home. You're not going to build big factories uh, or plant in developed countries anymore, and they're not. So the, I think the investment decline, which we've seen, the re relatively weak level of corporate investment, is deeply structural relating to where we are in globalization. Um, 
raises lots of very big issues which I don't have time to go into but I think we haven't thought through in the developed world at all now I've got one 30 seconds I've, I'm only two minutes over it's not too bad um, housing policies in the US uh, there have been a bundle of monstrous errors it seems to me uh, I personally have a, of the view that, that the idea that everybody should own their own house um, was a quite serious mistake uh, the, uh, now the tax system in very complicated ways of which the tax deductibility of interest is the least important has strongly encouraged this so in a way there's a limit to what you can do about it uh, because renting is so tax inefficient in an economy where you've got reasonably high income taxes but what has happened is that people who simply don't have the income characteristics which allow them to sustain very long-term financial commitments are being pushed into buying houses dramatically so and indeed on a corrupt way very corrupt way in the US with enormously damaging consequences so my own view is that two crucial priorities in housing in the US now are to have a simple mechanism for reducing the debt of people who are clearly massively over indebted uh, to get the leverage down in the, in the housing sector rather quickly. Uh, uh, that seems to me incredibly important. And secondly, to withdraw very, very substantially the, the level of support for housing finance uh, for, uh, so that the, the, the ratio of owner-occupation starts to decline. But the, none of this um, is in the least likely because in, mo in the US, as in most developed countries, the view that home ownership is sacrosanct is central. This has been, I would like to stress, an important feature of this crisis. There's no question it played a uh, substantial role. But uh, the probability is, even if we hadn't had a housing crisis, the financial sector would have found some way to lose all this money. Uh, be because they were simply getting more investors looking for decent returns into flowing into the, the financial sector than, than decent returns existed. I mean, the basic point was, as again, as I've stressed, the, the entity which should be using money to invest massively in long-term productive uh, enterprise, which is the corporate sector, non-financial corporate sector in the developed world, has just no interest in this. And in that situation, using the savings of the world efficiently within the developed countries, in the it's next to impossible. And there is no major developed country of which this is not true. And it's an, a very profound change. You basically can't run the world system, in my view, if the, the most dynamic emerging countries aren't net importers of capital from uh, the world. That's basically, I've done my best to cover the questions. Thank well, you very much. Let, <laughs> well, just to say, not just thank you for coming twice to the LSE today, and just I would say you rarely have a an evening as of this quality. It doesn't simply does not get better. Thank you so much. Pleasure.